You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. If you're a young person between the ages of, say, 11 to 15, living really anywhere in the world, you'd probably think that your life is pretty boring. You may or may not have parents that are around a lot. You go to school, you play video games, hang out with your friends, and spend countless hours scrolling through YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok, obsessing over other people's lives that you believe to be way more interesting or important than your own. But what if you had the skills to view your own life as a story, a valuable story, filled with lessons of growth, crisis, victory, wisdom, and excitement? How would you tell that story? And what if you could share that story and the main character wasn't some superhero or supermodel, but it was you? Well, Esther Maloney believes everyone has a story to tell and is on a mission to empower young people with the voice, tools, and skills to tell their own stories in the most beautiful and creative ways. She is a theater and film actor, director, writer, educator, and producer. She holds a BFA in theater performance and recently completed her master's in education at the University of Toronto. She is also the author of a recently released children's book titled Lovebirds Freedom. In this interview, we'll explore the art of storytelling and how it connects to empowering young people to value and creatively share their own stories. Esther, a warm welcome to you from the team at Cloud9 and Baha'i Teachings. Thank you so much for such a gorgeous introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I took a lot of pleasure in writing it. Now, you just wrote and published your first children's book, Lovebirds Freedom. The story follows a young girl named Lydia who is grieving the passing of her aunt. And at the same time, she begins to help her neighbor rehabilitate some wild baby lovebirds. When it's time for the lovebirds to be freed from their cage and into the wild, Lydia begins to explore her feelings of loss and sadness with her father. The conversation comes to imagine death as its own kind of freedom and draws on the words of Abdu'l-Bahá when he compares our body to a cage and our soul to the bird. If the cage becomes broken, the bird will continue to exist. Now, grief and loss are quite difficult subject matters to discuss with children. So I would love to know what inspired you to write the story and how you believe it will help young readers tackle such challenging conversations and process their emotions of grief and loss. I think there were two main influences for writing Lovebird's Freedom. Um, At the time when I started developing the idea, my best friend and my husband had both lost their parents and I was very close to them as they were kind of riding through these immense waves of grief. And at the same time as I was able to kind of draw on this beautiful image that you described, Abdu'l-Bahá's likening the soul to the bird and the body to the cage and then that freedom that the soul experiences at the moment of death. um, At the same time, that image, while so beautiful, Um, doesn't in fact always penetrate that grief-stricken heart. And I think I was really fascinated by that tension of, or maybe a perceived tension of knowing something spiritually that is very profound and reassuring, and at the same time, 
just that natural wave of grief that needs to come and is felt and is is very profound for someone who's lost someone in their family especially so that was kind of one part and then the other part was that i was at that time visiting a middle school and one of the middle school students did this presentation about his pet bird and this like 12 year old kid just standing at the front of the class describing all of the ways in which he takes care of his pet bird and it was a love bird and he had this kind of zeal for the whole thing and my, I was really touched by how um, just, yeah, how careful and kind and attentive um, this kid was to like every step he had to take to take care of this bird. And at that moment, I kind of thought, wow, I wonder if I could make a story out of Abdu'l-Baha's beautiful image of the bird in the cage and have this young protagonist who's also at the same time as taking care of a bird grieving their own loss. So that was kind of the, the origin story of Lovebird's Freedom. Um, and then in terms of your second question about what impact it could have, I mean, I think in my work with young people, I've just seen that they are not just capable of, but actually thirsting for these kinds of meaningful conversations. And in a lot of ways, maybe when we as adults feel kind of like, oh, this content is too deep or it's too intense or, you know, maybe at some at some point, it seems to me that we as adults are actually the ones who are nervous to wade into that water with young people. But they are actually very thirsty to have that conversation and they're they're ready and they're in many cases better equipped than we are. So. I, I, I hope that the book can be an opportunity for parents and children, yeah, to kind of wade in those waters together and just sit with those feelings of grief while also being surrounded by that, that beautiful image of the soul being released. Hmm. And I'm also just looking at the book here and you collaborated with a beautiful illustrator, Ella Habas. And at the end of the book, um, you kind of touch on different tools, such as uh, different beliefs surrounding death, um, being open to questions and riding the waves of grief. And then you have some practical ideas and projects that can help children process death and loss. And then also some things to keep in mind about helping injured birds. So um, this book is a wonderful tool to explore uh, the theme and, and conversation around death and loss. So if you're a parent out there, I highly encourage you to look up The Love Birds Freedom by Esther Maloney. Now, I know that this children's book is not, is only one of the many ways in which you've been creating and telling stories throughout your life. And we'll delve into that soon. But when you look back at your own life and some of the earliest memories that you have as a child, where did your creative journey begin? Hmm. I would definitely have to credit my maternal grandmother, Lucille Sanche Maloney. She was one of the earliest French-Canadian Baha'is in Quebec. And she also was a very creative person. And I think she was also kind of a rock star grandma, I would say. <laughs> she built her own roundhouse in the forest um, mm. when she was older. And I think having been a nurse her whole life, though she had studied at L'École des Beaux-Arts, which is like a fine arts school, she kind of, I feel like in her retirement, she allowed herself to fully become the artist that she always was. And she kind of took her grandchildren along with her in that process. So whenever we would go to Grand Maman Lulu's, we would hang out in the roundhouse, we would go for walks in the forest. 
And we would just make all manner of things. Like we were always making things. And the things were paths in the forest that we would name and we would make signs to name those paths or we would put paint all over our hands and feet and then run up and down the walk until there was footprints everywhere. Mm. Um, there was things with string and toilet paper. And <laughs> I mean, my parents were like, what is this? <laughs> but it was circus. such a, yeah, it was like a circus. And I remember one of the first more formal projects that we did was we would write books together. And I still have those books actually. Uh, one is called The Little Dinosaur and the other one is called The Little Butterfly. And I'm pronouncing them that way because they're spelled like wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, but she, I guess, would transcribe my stories and she would help me um, write them down and put them into actual little books and we would draw them. And sometimes we would wear costumes or we would. So I think for me, a lot of that feeling of like, human beings just make things and that's who we are. We're creative beings. Um, I would really attribute to my time with her. And she also, I think part of that process was she taught me that we, we say prayers and we call on the creator when we're, when we're making things. And when we walked in the forest, we would pray and we would look at nature as kind of a source of joy and inspiration. So I have a lot, a lot of gratitude for that time I spent with her. Hmm. And it sounds like you've been writing children's books for a very long time since you were young. Um, And what an idyllic childhood. Now, after graduating high school, you continue to tell stories by writing plays and theater productions. You also participated in a production called Diversity Dance Theater. Could you share a bit more about this production and what you'd learned about storytelling and its connection to social action? Yeah, so I was... I think really fortunate when I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to go to Europe. And I think lots of young Baha'is do what's called a year of service or like a period where they aren't in school and they just kind of offer their time to a community. And at that time uh, I went and I was kind of based in Germany with a group called Diversity Dance Theatre. And we learned these dances that I think many young people were learning at that time. And they were about various social issues like racism or um, drug abuse, um, the unity of family. There there was like a number of these topics. And then through like a six minute, very theatrical dance that would tell a particular story, we would share some of these ideas in all kinds of social contexts. And sometimes we would be at a school or a community festival Hmm. and we traveled for about four months sharing these dances. And I think during that time, sort of two things happened. During the the time when we were sharing the dances, I was able to see that um, the arts could be a very effective way to kind of um, very, very quickly connect the hearts. And I think a lot of the songs and the music that were used for those dances were very impactful and people Mm. were attracted to the message through those, those songs. And then the second part was that I was able to live in Budapest for like five months after that and work with a group of Roma youth and other youth from the community and teach them the dances. Um, And that was also a really kind of impactful experience because I was able to learn a lot about the culture and, um, and, and really like teaching them these dances actually became a pretext for just having great friendships and conversations with them and, um, I learned a lot through that process. And I think it 
it kind of that service solidified my desire to actually want to study theater more formally so that I could kind of actually know a little bit more like what was happening, right. what I was doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So following your time with Dan- Diversity Dance Theater, you got on the professional track and you completed a BA in theater. Uh, you then joined various theater companies, performed festivals, toured Canada, and also made a few appearances on Canadian television. So how did your experience as a storyteller translate to your work in the professional theater world and in front of the camera? And what was this experience like for you? And what what did you feel was missing? Hmm. Um, Yeah, I had a lot of really wonderful experiences during those years when I was working professionally. one of the experiences that was really formative was going north of the tree line in Quebec and sharing some plays with some Cree communities. And um, I had a great time. I mean, we performed 300 shows within like eight months. So it was really grueling. (laughs) It was a lot of like early mornings and lugging set pieces and vans. Mm -hmm. And I traveled with three guys for a long time and you become like a family for better or worse. And, mm. um, but it was a great way to kind of start my, my career. And, um, but I do remember being in some of those Cree villages and I remember wondering why we were sharing this play here um, for these kids, especially in situations where they didn't speak much English or French and, um, and this play wasn't in their language and it wasn't about their reality. And in some cases they actually like threw our own prop pieces and set pieces at us. And it, you know, it was a hard experience in that it was very humbling. And um, I think it, it was kind of a seed that grew for me over the next few years as I continued in my professional journey. And um, I was able to start a theater company and do some grassroots work with friends in Toronto and, through that, I kind of, I, I wrote my own solo play and I performed it and that kind of kept that writer side of me a little bit alive. And, and then I was able to act at the Shaw Festival for two seasons and really observe some like giants, like greats of Canadian theatre and learn a lot about the craft and, and work alongside them. But during that time, those same questions kind of came back in terms of, you know, who is in the audience? Who's able to pay 80 to $100 a ticket to see some of these classics that are really from the Western world? And who wants to see those classics? And at the same time, there were really important questions coming up about diversity and representation on stage in Canadian theatre. And all of that was kind of buzzing around my head. And I thought, you know, this seems a bit surface. Like we're talking a lot about having you know more diverse casting but what about who's who's writing new material who's writing stuff that really is very current and that was always on my mind and i think especially as someone who grew up with quite a lot of privilege and as a white woman i felt like i just didn't know what i was sort of perpetuating and if i wanted to be contributing to that um or if there was something else, I had this kind of itch, like there's something else I should be doing, but I right. don't know what it is. Right. And once you start, I think, auditioning for a lot of commercials, and I was starting to get more into that that world of TV and film, which is was excellent, um, I felt like the industry or the 
the kind of situations I was in were maybe shaping me a little more than I wanted to be shaped. And I wanted to be shaping it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there was a certain point where I started learning about some other avenues. um, And that was more in the community arts direction and working with young people and in high schools. And there was kind of a deliberate point where I started saying to myself, like, I'm not happy. I don't feel like this is really my path. And I, Mm. I needed to kind of look for something else. And it was a bit of a scary, lost <laughs> sort of time. But I'm thankful for that now. So at that time, I I remember you shared that you went to the Baha'i House of Worship in Chicago and Will met and you begged Baha'u'llah. What were you what were you asking God to help you with? What were you praying for? <laughs> when I think about that time in Will met, it was my first time uh, at that beautiful house of worship. And I remember looking up at this incredible ceiling and the mm. intricate design and and I just remember it was a very clear moment for me where I I sort of pleaded with God and said like if there's anything else for me if there's anything else that I could be doing that would be in any way helpful to humanity because I think that's where I felt like the things I was doing felt disconnected to me it felt like I was furthering my own career and that was that was sort of all I was doing it was really a question to God, like, I'm ready. I'm ready to make the sacrifices. Um, if there's something else that I can do, please, please strip away whatever needs to be stripped away so that I can do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So after this period, it seemed like you began to work on a bunch of different projects, freelancing as an artist, running community arts programs, teaching drama in high schools and writing plays with youth, which connected back to your passion for telling stories in line with social action. And this is also about the same time, correct me if I'm wrong, that you connected with the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program in your neighborhood in Toronto. Now, the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program is a global movement inspired by junior youth, who are youth between the ages of 11 to 15, to work together toward a better world. Each week, junior youth gather together to study materials based on moral and spiritual development, building bonds of friendship, and developing their own artistic talents and capabilities. They also take time to serve their communities. So you heard about this program taking place in your neighborhood and you wanted to get involved. So what did you do? Um, well, I, it probably wasn't as tidy as all of that. but I, I, certainly... <laughs> I was trying to summarize a very large <laughs> Thank you. portion of your life into just one short question paragraph. So I apologize. Yeah. Sure, there's, no, a lot, no. there's a lot going on in there as well. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it was pretty messy. It was like you know, me showing up and offering drama workshops and, and maybe thinking I was helping, but maybe I wasn't actually helping. And, <laughs> um, and just trying to be... Yeah, maybe a little bit of a groupie of of some really excellent animators and groups. And I think over time, um, there started to be some interest in developing, you know, some some arts around the Junior Youth Program. So I was able to come and help them create a play around Glimmerings of Hope, which is one of the the stories that the Junior Youth study in in the program. Um, But then as a few youth said, you know, actually we'd like to make some films. Um, uh, Some animators in one particular neighborhood welcomed me with open arms to come and and just sit in their groups and observe the conversations that were happening with the junior youth. And I think 
something significant happened for me as a creator and as an artist as I was sitting and listening to these conversations because I had worked with young people in a number of other contexts, but I just noticed that the tenor of the conversations and the approach that these animators were taking um, was unique. And I was really drawn to it. And I immediately wanted to learn what they were doing. Um, so as I myself became an animator and started to serve in a neighborhood and um, started to understand some of the concepts that are underpinning the junior youth program, I started to think more about how those concepts could influence story and the way in which narratives about young people and by young people could be shaped. Um, so I got, I think, just really galvanized and excited by the potential for these particular young people who may in many cases have been overlooked by society or mm -hmm. um, sort of written off in a particular way, certainly by those that I had been kind of with in terms of like my own previous career. Mm -hmm. um, but all I wanted to do was sit and, and learn from them and, and have these hilarious and stirring and interesting conversations. And from that point, we started to create together and, and write some short stories and ask some more profound questions based on their reality and also based on the conversations they were having with their animators and tutors. Mm -hmm. And what were some of these like insights that you were drawing on or conversations? Um, what were they, what were the youth kind of concerned about? Um, I remember that one of the key concepts we talked about in the early stages was competition. And a lot of the youth were newcomers to Canada. They had come with their families and I remember one of them said, you know, everything in Canada, people say everything is about collaboration and cooperation and we want you to cooperate. But then, and he was very thoughtful. He said, I just don't know why everything feels so competitive then. And it was just this very sincere question and like a searching question. And it, I think, resonated with all of us, not just the junior youth, but we were all like, yeah, that's true. It, there is a, an environment of competition that surrounds us. And so then we started to mine that. And I think one of the key things that we knew we wanted to do in our content was we didn't want to just show the negative aspect. We didn't want to tell a story that um, just said, you know, racism is bad or uh, competition is bad. We really wanted to highlight the subtlety of the way in which certain forces in society kind of influence us. And we wanted our stories to do justice to that and not kind of sweep it with the broad bro brush of kind of we didn't want it to be moralistic or say like this is good and that's bad yeah so we had to have really intense kind of long conversations teasing out all the intricacies of what we were saying were we saying you shouldn't be competitive when you were playing soccer were we saying that um human beings are just cooperative by nature and that anyone who's competitive is in some way wrong or flawed um all of those types of questions had to kind of come out and story became the vehicle to kind of have those conversations. So through improvisation, we were able to kind of look at aspects of reality that the youth were facing and, and think about what, what those meant. So, so really this whole process was really helping them reflect inward in their own lives. Were you seeing a transformation as well as, as they were progressing through this this dialogue and this conversation in their behavior and in their outlook on life? 
I mean, I think that aspect in terms of their own transformation, I would have to contribute, like completely attribute to the junior youth program and the, you know, their kind of commitment to something that was a years long process and the number of friendships that surrounded them and, and all of that process was very rich. And that's, I think without any of that, this project, what became this project never would have, would have unfolded, but certainly the opportunity to kind of mirror out some of those things through the arts um, seemed to kind of like it was a release valve and it, it was another space in which we could kind of explore the implications of what they were learning about a bit more playfully or in some cases with a bit more personal focus or looking at specific situations or we would end up talking about their family life we would end up asking each other questions about friendships relationships career aspirations consultation within family all of that but within this kind of larger scope of the concepts from from the institute process or these courses that the youth were going through. Right, right. And you began to make this this film, which was your first film called Pumpkin Pie. Um, was this about the the competition, the theme of competition? Yeah. So yeah. Pumpkin Pie was uh, the kind of the first film, and I, I mean, Pumpkin Pie was the first film that we created with these youth who had improvised a number of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really stood out for me in that was pumpkin pie kind of dissolved this traditional narrative of a parent who's kind of riding a kid to do better at school. Mm-hmm. In pumpkin pie, you had this very sweet dad character who is just as dejected as his son when his son comes home with a low grade mm-hmm. and really walks with him in a very humble way in terms of thinking about how he can do better, but also helps him like, in a nuanced way, not think about beating the other kid or getting a higher grade than this guy. Um, So there was a lot of love and kind of nuance in the way that the youth were describing their parents and how their parents are rooting for them. And and at the same time, there is this environment of competition. Yeah. And then what happened when you finished the film? I know you, you shared it with the community, but in kind of what context or form did you share it with them? Yeah. One thing we kind of decided at the outset was that it was really important to share whatever we had created, even if it was full of holes or, you know, (laughs) it was in process and we were all really learning about filmmaking for the very first time together. Um, So we decided to just have a community screening at the community center and the youth that had worked on the film and their families, um, they all came out to kind of support this first screening. So we had about 50 people who came and, watched the film and then we kind of sat together and had discussions about the theme and about what had happened in the story and how the parents felt about it and how the the junior youth or the young people felt about it. And it was really a space for everyone to come and think together. Beautiful. And was this like at a theater or like a community center? It was at a community center. Okay. So someplace very accessible to the community. Yeah. It was like right in the heart of the neighborhood. Awesome. And what did you learn about the process of filmmaking and engaging youth in that creative process? I think one of the things I had felt in my own work on film sets is that it's a film is a big machine. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a hierarchical system um, and it, it works a certain way because it works that way. And um, I think with my own background in theater and in community arts, there, 
I had no choice but to bring that into my practice mm. when we started Illumin Media Project. Um, so, for example, like I didn't audition anyone. Um, it was really a space where everyone was welcome. It didn't mean that everyone could do whatever they wanted, but I think the spirit of service that it emerged out of in terms of the junior youth program added a lot of strength to the project. Hmm. So when people wanted to serve within Illumin, there was always something they could do, whether it was to provide a meal or hold a slate or operate a boom microphone or, or play one of the bigger roles. And in many cases, those who ended up playing some of the bigger roles were not those that were kind of pining for the opportunity to be the star of the film or anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I think that spirit of service really took us a long way because we were all learning together about what it looked like to kind of, um, you know, there's this quotation that uh, when we create art, it's as if we're at prayer in the temple that mm -hmm. Abdul Baha describes that process. And Many times we would come together and we would read that quotation and say, what does that look like on the set? What does it look like to be at prayer in the temple when we're kind of rushing to shoot something while the sun is going down? Or, mm. you know, so-and-so wasn't able to make it on time and now we have to rearrange the whole schedule for the day. Or the innumerable challenges that come up with gear or lost batteries or I forgot that cable at the last location and right. now we desperately need it. And yeah. All of those things that would come up. I think that spirit of just knowing we were doing something that was not just for us, but we wanted to share these stories with the community that really helped everyone kind of right. pull through. Of course. Wonderful. So it's been about seven years since you made your first film, Pumpkin Pie, and you've continued making films with junior youth and youth who are graduates of the program in your neighborhood through a more established project called Illumin Media. You're now offering workshops in clinics around Toronto and being invited into schools to share the films that you've made. So could you walk us through your classroom or community presentations and what they look like and how do they aim to contribute to the transformation of your community? So I think as we kept creating these films, we started to have conversations with the youth and the junior youth and they felt like the films were uplifting and they wanted to share them a little bit more broadly. So they would say, oh, you should come to our school and share this. And Usually that's how we ended up getting connected was through a student who would bring us, kind of take us to their leader mm -hmm. and or their principal. And then the, the principal or the teacher would say, yeah, let's try this out. Um, so over the last six years or so, that's grown. And in some cases, we're sharing the films with about 300 young people at a time who then they kind of come together. They'll watch it in a big space like a gym or an auditorium. And then they go back to their classrooms. Um, and one thing that we really try to do is we present them with a question at the, at the beginning of an episode. Hmm. Um, and that question is meant to kind of help them think conceptually about the themes that are going to follow in the episode. Um, so, for example, like the first episode of a series, How We Grow, we ask them, how many of you think things are actually improving in the world and how many of you don't? And they show of hands, like raise their hands in terms of, to, to some extent, it's a gauge of what their level of hopefulness is. Hmm. Um, and then the episode looks at this idea that humanity is at a, a critical turning point, that humanity is coming of age. And that has certain implications for our own maturity and our own ability to contribute to society. Um, so for each of the episodes, we would ask this kind of prompt question. And then we would share the, the episode, which is usually about 15 minutes. And then we spend 20 to 
30 minutes having discussions in smaller groups with, um, yeah, maybe eight to 10 grade seven students. And then after that, we usually include like a creative component. So we try to include the students in the creative aspect of the filmmaking process in some sense. And this is to kind of ensure that there's a really strong feedback loop within the project so that um, not only are we creating content, but we want to gauge the fact that we want to gauge whether our content is really reflective of their social reality. Right. Um, are we understanding the issues with as much nuance as we could? And we're continually learning from these creative activities that the students do. So they'll, mm -hmm. for example, create a, a short storyboard or they'll do skits um, that are based on their own lived experience, or they'll draw kind of a map of their relationships and service opportunities or small kind of acts that they could carry out within their own lives. Essentially, we try to take some aspects of the junior youth program and share them far more broadly than the program is able to reach at this point within a particular neighborhood. So it's kind of this notion of like concentric circles that spread outward from the junior youth program. We're able to share some concepts, some spiritual ideas with maybe sometimes hundreds of junior youth and young people around maybe one or two junior youth groups themselves. And then those junior youth groups are strengthened by kind of a culture of young people around them that are like, oh, hey, yeah, I've, I've also been thinking about that competition cooperation thing, or I've also mm -hmm. been thinking about humanity's destiny or mm -hmm. how we make big decisions and consult with our parents in our lives or what service is. So it's kind of in the water instead of it just being a very small group of junior youth that are in this mm. very special program but are not surrounded by anything. We're hoping to kind of move towards that shift in culture just in a very small geographic pocket. Right. It's just wonderful that you've been able to take this conversation um, to these schools and expanded it and created a safe space for youth to have this conversation, whether or not it's in, in the junior youth group itself. Now, in terms of your school visits, how have they informed the making of future films? And what are some of the feedback you've taken on over the years and applied to the Illumin project and the, the films that you've been creating? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that come to mind. One is um, when we first started making these films, I was really struck by sharing them in the neighborhood that I lived, I lived in and um, having youth say like, hey, I knew all the Indian people in your movie or, uh, Hey, you filmed in my apartment. <laughs> We'd be like, well, actually all of our apartments look the same. Um, but this kind of like recognition that would happen for young people was very powerful. And I think it taught me a lot about the power of something that's very local. And, um, yeah, that, I think that continued to inform the way in which we made the content. We didn't, try to make anything that was really fancy or glossy, nor could we really do that. But um, we just trusted that, in fact, getting things even more kind of on the nose in terms of this specific reality was very generative for, for the youth that were watching the content. And we heard sometimes, like years later, teachers would say, oh, yeah, we remember you guys. We saw your film at this you know, film festival or at this thing. And all the students really preferred your film because they said it was real. Like it was, mm. it was very close to their reality. The aunties talked like the aunties they knew, like everything was very relatable. So that's kind of guided us. And I think another aspect that I've found very surprising has been 
um, I guess, kind of a, a real openness to spirituality and actually talking about even God and the creator, which is like, I think we're living in, especially in North America, in a very secular It's so taboo society. in the education system. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So to be in those educational spaces and actually have an openness where people are, I think in some sense, even relieved that we're kind of, we are addressing these spiritual themes because there are now so many challenges facing us in terms of mental health, like large numbers of newcomers coming to all of our cities and bringing with them tons of um, experiences, insight, wisdom, uh, horrors, all manner of things are coming with them in their hearts and minds. And how else can we kind of come together and speak about these things in a unified, inclusive and exploratory way where we're really learning from one another. That has to include spirituality and it has to include the arts. And I think we can see the ways in which young people are resonating with that um, and, and feel welcome to call that out. I remember sharing some episodes in a grade 10 class and asking some of these grade 10 students like, uh, do you feel like the actions that we take in our lives can actually better society or do we do we have this capacity to better humanity and the students were pretty quiet and then one of them said i feel like i want to say yes but i think i'm probably the only one who will say yes so uh i don't know and i i remember feeling like at that time in grade eight and in grade seven the students would often just say yes absolutely we can we have to make a difference but then as the students got a little bit older, it became harder for them to say that they were hopeful or that they wanted to be hopeful. And over time, that age seems to be even getting lower. Like in grade seven now, it's hard sometimes for them to say that they're hopeful. Mm. Well, the concept of hope is something that is heavily explored in the Genius Spiritual Empowerment Program, um, which I think is so important at such a young age. But it's also something that becomes increasingly more difficult as our lives become more complex, as the climate is also becoming more intense around us. Um, but the experience you just shared, I think, closely relates to your master's thesis, which you recently completed. Um, and I would love to learn more about the connection between your thesis and the Illumin project and also some of the research and findings that you had following your thesis? Yeah, I think a number of the questions that drove my research project um, were born out of my experience with Illumin. I remember being in one of the middle school classes and asking the students to draw uh, a storyboard that was based on something that had occurred in their life. And a number of the, they were boys, a number of the boys in the, this grade seven class were drawing all kinds of stuff that I was like, what is that? And they were like, this is like a lava ball and this is a volcano and this is me jumping over the." <laughs> and I was like, really, did this happen? And then I realized they were all drawing things from video games that they play. Mm. And to them, this was very much part of their life. And to me, I kind of thought, well, what does this mean? Like, why are they writing about this? Um, and I asked one of them, I said, why don't you write something that happened maybe in your family or with your friends? And he just laughed and he said, oh, miss, nothing happens to me in real life. And I think to me that 
that moment really stayed with me and it kind of drove my research questions. And those were really questions around the way in which media is influencing young people. And, and that's certainly been very well studied, but um, then I think then the next loop is the way in which the current media environment shapes the stories that they then tell mm. and what they deem worthy of telling of their own lives or, um, yeah. So I'm interested in that kind of feedback loop between the media environment, because we know that we're organic with the world, as Shoghi Effendi says. So even for myself, in what ways are the stories and narratives and song lyrics that I'm exposed to shaping the way I perceive my own life? Um, so my research project was an eight-week program in a middle school um, that was separate from Illumin, but I just visited a class uh, a number of times. We did some critical media literacy work, which I think many people know what that's about. You watch a clip, you kind of uh, unpack it, think about you know the, the message, the audience, the mm. media, how they achieve that message. Um, but then I think a lot of media scholars are asking this really important question, which is they're recognizing that young people also have to create their own content. That's a really important part of feeling empowered in our current media environment, and they have to see themselves as digital innovators. And those are kind of the questions that I'm really interested in now is how do we have young people from very diverse backgrounds and socioeconomic um, backgrounds start to see themselves as digital innovators? And how does that kind of flow into an educational context that helps them unpack some of the narratives or ways of thinking or representations that have been kind of problematic? Yeah. Um, so like one of the quotes that I really love is that essentially like you can't take someone's story away without giving them a new one. Mm. And essentially we have to have a story that is propositional and that helps us kind of focus on the, on the positive and on how we actually do want to live our lives. We've certainly seen a lot of media that points at all the stuff that we're doing wrong. Right. But what does it look like to tell stories that actually help us live our lives in better ways? Um, and those were kind of the, the questions that I put to the students. And um, over the eight weeks, we watched a bunch of media, but then they also created their own pieces of media, their own stories. And I was very open with them in terms of what they were kind of allowed to work with in terms of form. So I wasn't particularly interested in teaching them filmmaking or podcasting skills, for yeah. example, but they could draw a storyboard that shared their story. They could just write a written script. They could shoot a short film. They could do a podcast. It was really open. And then I kind of looked at all of that data, which was their stories, uh, a number of interviews that I carried out with them and their teachers. And uh, through that process, there were kind of three what I call propositional stories that emerged. And these stories that I think are really exciting and lead us towards like maybe new directions and new questions were the way in which these youth, many of whom are newcomers, highlighted the significant role of the community and the family in a context that's very individualistic. Right. So when you think a little bit about narratives and the way like a protagonist is always an individual, um, what does it mean for a community to be a protagonist? Um, and then another aspect that came up was this idea of seeing the spiritual and material aspects of young people as going hand in hand. And how can we start to see young protagonists that bring those two aspects together? Um, and then the last one 
I kind of called it capturing the seeming contradictions and nuances of lived experience. Um, and there's this quote by a wonderful Canadian scholar, Julie Salverson, she calls it the courage to be happy amidst ongoing loss. Mm. And I think working with a lot of Syrian refugees or folks that have really gone through tremendous trauma, um, that courage to be happy amidst ongoing loss is a very richly textured and it's full of story and it's full of learning for all of us. Um, so I think that that research was a really interesting opportunity for me to kind of dive deeper into the stories that might help us get out of the really challenging times that we're living through. Mm. Well, Esther, I'm so grateful to you and your team for creating a safe space for youth to explore their own history and journey and to realize their own potential as creative contributors to this very complex and evolving media landscape. Um, sadly, we've come to the end of this episode of Cloud9, but I want to thank you for taking the time um, to, to meet with us and the team at Baha'i Teachings and for sharing your own journey as an artist and how it's been influenced or more, to, more importantly, being influenced by the Junior Spiritual Empowerment Program and the life of your community. Thank you so much, Shadi. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out BahaiTeachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.